Section 20 of 93 by Victor Hugo, translated by Aline Delano. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 1, Book 4, Chapter 7. No mercy, no quarter. While these events were transpiring in the vicinity of Tanis, the beggar had gone towards Quilon. He plunged into the ravines under wide leafy bowers, heedless of all things, noticing nothing. As he himself had expressed it, dreaming rather than thinking, for the thinker has an object, but the dreamer has none. Wandering, rambling, pausing, munching here and there a sprig of wild sorrel, drinking at the springs, raising his head from time to time as distant sounds attracted his attention, then yielding again to the irresistible fascination of nature, presenting his rags to the sunlight, hearing human sounds by chance, but listening to the singing of birds. He was old and slow, as he told the Marquis of Lantenac, he could not go far. A quarter of a mile fatigued him. He made a short circuit toward croix au Franchant, and it was evening when he returned. A little beyond Macy, the path he followed led him to a sort of elevation, destitute of trees, which commanded a wide expanse of country, including the entire horizon from the west as far as the sea. A smoke attracted his attention. There is nothing more delightful than a smoke, and nothing more alarming. There are smokes signifying peace, and smokes that mean mischief. In the density and color of a column of smoke lies all the difference between war and peace, brotherly love and hatred, hospitality and the grave, life and death. A smoke rising among the trees may mean the sweetest thing in all the world, the family hearth, or the most dreadful of calamities, a conflagration. And the entire happiness or misery of a human being is sometimes centered in a vapor, scattered by the wind. The smoke which Telmarch saw was of a kind to excite anxiety. It was black with sudden flashes of red light, as though the furnace from whence it sprung burned fitfully and was gradually dying out, and it rose above Erbonpile. Telmarch hurried along, walking towards the smoke. He was tired, but he wanted to know what it meant. He reached the top of a hillock, behind which nestled a hamlet and the farm. Neither farm nor hamlet was to be seen. A heap of ruins was still burning, all that remained of Erbonpile. It is much more heartrending to see a cottage burn than a palace. A cottage in flames is a pitiful sight. Devastation swooping down on poverty, a vulture pouncing upon an earthworm. There is a sense of repugnance about it that makes one shudder. If we believe the biblical legend, the sight of a conflagration once turned a human being into a statue. For an instant a similar change came over Telmarch. The sight before his eyes transfixed him to the spot. The work of destruction went on in silence. Not a cry was heard. Not a human sigh mingled with the smoke. That furnace pursued its task of devouring the village with no other sound than the splitting of timbers and the crackling of thatch. From time to time the clouds of smoke were rent. The falling roofs revealed the gaping chambers. The fiery furnace displayed all its rubies. The poor rags turned scarlet and the wretched old furniture, tinged with purple, stood out amid these dull red interiors. Telmarch was dazed by the terrible calamity. Several trees of a neighboring chestnut grove had caught fire and were in a blaze. He listened, trying to hear a voice, a call, or some kind of a noise. Nothing stirred but the flames. All was still save the fire. Had all the inhabitants fled? Where was the community that lived and labored at Erbon Pyle? What had become of this little family? Telmarch descended the hillock. 
A gloomy enigma lay before him. He approached it slowly, gazing at it steadily. He advanced towards the ruin with the deliberation of a shadow, feeling like a ghost in this tomb. Having reached what had formerly been the door of the farm, he looked into the yard, whose ruined walls no longer separated it from the surrounding hamlet. What he had seen before was nothing as compared with what he now beheld. From afar he had seen the terror of it, now all its horrors lay before him. In the middle of the yard was a dark mass, vaguely outlined on one side by the flames, and on the other by the moonlight. It was a heap of men, and these men were dead. Around this mound lay a wide pool, still smoking, whose surface reflected the flames, but it needed not the fire to redden it, it was of blood. Telmarch went up to it. He examined, one after another, these prostrate bodies. All were corpses. Both the moon and the conflagration lighted up the scene. The dead bodies were those of soldiers. Every man had bare feet. Both their shoes and their weapons had been taken from them, but they still wore their blue uniforms. Here and there one could distinguish, amid the confusion of the limbs and heads, hats bearing the tricolore cockades, riddled with bullets. They were Republicans, the same Parisians who the previous evening had been living active men, garrisoned at the farm Erbonpal. The symmetrical arrangement of the fallen bodies proved the affair to have been an execution. They had been shot on the spot and with precision. They were all dead. Not a sound came from the mass. Telmarch examined each individual corpse, and every man was riddled with shot. Their executioners, doubtless in haste to depart, had not taken time to bury them. Just as he was about to leave the place, his attention was attracted by the sight of four feet protruding beyond the corner of a low wall in the yard. These feet were smaller than those which he had previously seen. There were shoes upon them, and as he drew near he perceived that they were the feet of women. Two women were lying side by side behind the wall, also shot. Telmarch stooped over them. One of them wore a kind of uniform. Beside her was a jug, broken and empty. She was a vivandière. She had four balls in her head. She was dead. Telmarch examined the other, who was a peasant woman. Her eyes were closed, her mouth open, her face discolored, but there were no wounds in her head. Her dress, undoubtedly worn to shreds by long marches, was rent by her fall, exposing her bosom. Telmarch pushed it still further aside, and discovered on her shoulder a round wound made by a ball. The shoulder blade was broken. He gazed upon her livid breast. A nursing mother, he murmured. He touched her. She was not cold. The broken bone and the wound in the shoulder were her only injuries. He placed his hand on her breast and felt a faint throb. She was not dead. Telmarch raised himself and cried out in a terrible voice, Is there no one here? Is that you, Kaimand? replied a voice so low that it could scarcely be heard. At the same time a head emerged from a hole in the ruin, and the next moment a second one peered forth from another aperture. These were the sole survivors, two peasants who had managed to hide themselves, and who now, reassured by the familiar voice of the Kaiman, crept out of the hiding places where they had been crouching. They approached Telmarch, still trembling violently. The latter had found strength to utter his cry, but he could not speak. Deep emotions always produce this effect. He pointed to the woman lying at his feet. Is she still alive? asked one of the peasants. Telmarch nodded. And the other woman? Is she living too? 
asked the second peasant. Telmarch shook his head. The peasant who had been the first to show himself continued. All the others are dead, are they not? I saw it all. I was in my cellar. How grateful one is to God in times like these to have no family. My house was burned. Lord Jesus, everybody was killed. This woman had children. Three little ones. The children cried, Mother! The mother cried, Oh, my children! They killed the mother and carried away the children. I saw all. Oh, my God! My God! Those who murdered them went off well pleased. They carried away the little ones and killed the mother. But she is not dead, is she? I say, come on. Do you think you could save her? Don't you want us to help you carry her to your carnichot? Telmarch nodded. The woods were near the farm. They quickly made a litter with branches and ferns, and placing the woman, still motionless, upon it, they started towards the grove, the two peasants bearing the litter, one at the head, the other at the foot, while Telmarch supported the woman's arm and constantly felt her pulse. On the way the two peasants talked, and over the body of the bleeding woman, whose pale face was lighted by the moon, they exchanged their frightened exclamations. To kill all. To burn all. Oh, my lord, is that the way they are going to do now? It was that tall old man who ordered it. Yes, he was the commander. I did not see him while the shooting went on. Was he there? No, he was gone, but it was done by his order all the same. Then it was he who did this? He said, kill, burn, no quarter. Is he a marquis? Yes, of course, he is our marquis. What is his name? It is Monsieur de Lantenac. Telmarch raised his eyes to heaven, murmuring between his teeth. Had I been known? End of section 20